0: Hello and welcome to Real Bible Stories. Join us as we deep dive into the historical, religious, cultural, political, and emotional context surrounding the real lives of real people in the Bible and the stories we've all grown to love.
1: Hey guys, welcome back. This week we're taking it all the way back to Genesis. We're going to be talking about creation and um, I'm your host, Selena, and I am here with my husband, Imran.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: And our teacher, Ryan Brown. Hey, guys. So, Imran, can you please read the Genesis passage for us?
0: Yes, I can. So, uh, me and my wife switched it up here because I actually really enjoyed reading uh, from Genesis. So. And, right- and
2: to be clear, what we're talking about today is all of Genesis 1, but we feel like we went to... Give a structural base, right? Without reading
0: of whole chapter, yeah. So please, as we're just going to read the first five verses, just as a starting point or a jumping off point. But if you have your Bible in front of you, we're going to be reading through the entire. We're not reading through, but going through the entirety of chapter one. Right, so Genesis, Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. I guess ways it could go. So I'm going to hand it over to Ryan, our teacher, to walk us through what we're going to talk about today. Yeah.
2: So first off, Genesis 1, I think, has got to be the hardest material um, I've ever studied. And, you know, depending on what your background is, depending on where you came from and what you've been told about this, um, this chapter... Um, it may surprise you a bit, but this is literally probably one of the hardest pieces of text to to really understand. Um, and there's many reasons for that. Um, it, it is inherently layered and, and deep. I mean, it, there are so many different elements that, that you see um, present that are carried all throughout Scripture, but it's all like in one place. Um, it really is. It's just very difficult to get a full sense and understanding of what exactly is being um, ultimately communicated. And this kind of goes back, and I, or to say there's a theme that I just want to hone in on for, for this study is the idea of revelation, not the book, but the concept of God revealing things to us. And, um, you know, anything, anytime that God comes and, and interacts with us, mm-hmm. exposes something to us, you know, he's revealing something to us that we otherwise would not know if left to our own capacity. Okay. So I think a good reading and and study principle is to always be asking the question, what is God revealing in this that we otherwise would not know? Okay. So, um, with that kind of as a, as a, um, it is also through that context, by the way, that most, um, well, well, how Hebraic thought really um, understood prophecy. So in our Western minds, for example, we, we understand prophecy to be, um, you know, there's a prediction and then there's a fulfillment, right? Okay. The Hebrews viewed it more in terms of there's a revelation and then an understanding. So God reveals something, and then there's a point to which it become, we we understand it, we grasp it, we we come into... Um or a fuller understanding, right? So you got to understand why, a little why bit. Why would you
0: say that we have those two different approaches to prophecy?
2: One's the Eastern way of viewing things. Um, another one's the Western. So another good, another good uh, example of that, I guess, culturally with, between the two, would uh, when, you know, when we're reading scripture, we tend to think of um, we we approach scripture in the tens of in, in terms of morality, what is right, what is wrong. Jews really um, re- Hebraic thought, and even really the whole, you know, Eastern culture views things less about, um, they they don't define it the way like we do as right and wrong. They view it more what is clean and unclean. I see. You see see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So things that you do are wrong. Yes, they're wrong. They would think they're wrong, but they wouldn't put it in terms of that's not okay to do. It's more that's
0: unclean. Okay. You know what I mean? Because then you would then have to go and cleanse yourself. Like there was a whole process to right. go to purification, the temple and purify yourself, cleanse yourself. Correct. Uh, of um, that.
2: So that was a very much where when we think of things as right and wrong, you know, we don't really have a purification process in the Western world, right? So sometimes we get disconnected to, I guess, that power and element of, of Christ in the gospel. But in terms of revelation of, of, there's a prediction and then there's a fulfillment of that prediction. Um, for, for them, it's more about there is a revelation that's made, and then there's a a coming into a fuller understanding of what that revelation means. Sometimes that is a in, in the model of prediction fulfillment. Right, there are times where, you know, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were in Micah five um, two. You know, speaking of Luke, um, with, with the birth narrative of Christ, that Micah made a prediction. Right, mm-hmm. um, that. That the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And then in in Luke 2, we have a fulfillment of that. Um, but there's they th- viewed it more though that what God revealed to Micah, he revealed that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem, and then there's a realization of it in Luke chapter two, right? And we kind of talked about that, that they, they came into a fuller understanding, and Mary's kind of growing and her growing uh, understanding of that revelation right so um would,
0: I have a question sure now. would this be the same argument that would be carried forward um when we talk about dreams in the Bible where like these kings had had a dream mm-hmm. and then the prophet came and explained the dream to them would that be that same um, revelation, revelation understanding. versus understanding right. relationship right it's really interesting
2: but but why that's important for Genesis one though and what I was trying to emphasize at the beginning for that is that we need to ask, what is God revealing to us in this? This is the very first. This is the opening, the chapter of the Torah, right? What is God revealing to, um, you know, in in this first piece here that, um, that that is significant, right? Um, because I think, and we're gonna go through a bunch of different lenses of how we read Genesis one and I'm not going to be giving a whole lot of resolution to most the answers that people are probably, uh, or the questions that a lot of people have. But I think by the end of the the study, though, you're going to realize that most of those questions that people have, what people like to argue about, and what they make this chapter to be about is really silly.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Typically meaning, like I I see most Christians, um, and even many, many pastors really kind of just approach it through two lens. They approach it through the theological lens, so what theological precedents are being set here, and then I also see th- uh, approach through a scientific lens, mm-hmm. um, and the theological piece we will yes, I mean uh, we see ex nihilo out of nothing God created um, everything. We see um, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his you know that he's all powerful, all knowing, he's everywhere. Yeah. Like, a lot of that is there, but um. The scientific piece, though, while there's certain scientific elements of the Bible or there's certain things that have scientific um, uh, I don't, causality or effect, mm-hmm. it's not a science book, right? So when you say like the very, the question is, is the very opening of the Torah, what God wants to reveal to me is how many days it took to create the earth? Not quite. You know what I mean? Um, I get I, you. And I think by the end, you're going to see kind of how silly that is.
0: Um, a lot of the Bible is written as poetry, like or songs, like uh, like the Songs of Solomon, all the Psalms, all this stuff. It a lot of it has that, uh, um, like poetry, like language to it. So, it does, and
2: that's actually one of the the lenses that you need to. I think we need to read this through because. Um, And when when you go through the literary report, I guess before I dive into that, let me just kind of say what the approach is going to be. Because um, as I struggled and I spent hours and hours and hours just trying to figure out Genesis 1, this was one of those where everything i had been kind of told before, I kind of was very much convinced that it wasn't that, but I didn't really have like a good like, but then what is it? You know, so I I spent hours, you know, kind of diving into this and I realized like through every different lens, every, every... Um, different contexts that I would try to study, it would would lead me to different but equally powerful and um, amazing um, things with it of of what's kind of getting emphasized from that lens. Um, So I'm just going to share those. Like I I don't, I do not intend to kind of do like, well, this is the big systematic that ties it all together with maybe one exception. But um, I, I think you'll get a gain a fuller appreciation of what's going on and really just arguing about the age of the earth um, and, and taking the scientific approach to to it is just really, really silly. Um, but talking about Revelation, though, okay? Well, first, let's talk the literary because you brought up poetry. So let's talk about its literary setup first. Um, it's really hard because you read it and it's obviously telling a story, right? There's a narrative, There's a narrative that is going on that, um, you know, a a story is being told. However, there is a lot of very interesting poetic elements that are included in it. Um, to give you kind of a few examples, like, um, if you were to read Genesis one, two, um, you see a, a very obvious use case of Hebrew poetry called parallelism, um, You see, days one through three kind of got this parallelism where um, God is separating things, and then four Mm. through six He's filling things. Um, In Genesis one two, so we call it one two a, one two b, and then one two c. Okay, so you got three
0: three parts uh, of three parts of that
2: verse of one two. Before
0: we even dive into that, can you talk a little bit about the structure of the Bible? Because the Bible wasn't originally written with chapters or verses, right? It wasn't.
2: And I was actually going to talk about this in a little bit, because um, I was wasn't going to talk in terms of the the structure of how it was written as much as the structure of how things were revealed. Because I, I want to kind of talk about the revelation piece.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So well, I just didn't. I just wanted to note then that that we shouldn't get so hung up on. The verses; Th- those are and, just and, references. Yeah, it's just to help you for, get to a point. Right. In the it's book. just for
2: me to give you a quick reference. Um, that's why that structured. Right. Right. Why that's there. Um, right. But so when we look at the Genesis one two, you know, there's three parts of it. We'll say one two a, one two b, one two c. You see parallelism going between one two a and one two b, but then you got another element that was known within Hebrew poetry called asymmetric parallelism. Um, where it kind of flips it. There's like an inverse uh, repeat. So um, I don't know if Selena you want to read Genesis 1-2? I could kind of show what you mean, what I mean.
1: The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters.
2: So nice. you, you see uh, formless and void, darkness and the deep, right? That, that's parallelism. And then you get to see there and what it, he does is that he says the exact same thing a different way, right? So you don't get any additional information other than the fact that the spirit of God was was within that, right? <clears throat> so so that's a that's a form of asymmetric parallelism. But you also see um, repetition of words and structure. You see the reverse ordering of phrases. So Genesis one one is restated in reverse order in Genesis two four. Um, so in the beginning God created the heavens, and then in the day that the heavens were made, God created. Right? That that is a um, poetic um, use of, of language that is very common within Hebrew poetry. Okay. Um, you know, we may not see it right away. Um, you also see the use of sevens and derivatives of sevens. Like you, you, God is mentioned thirty-five times in the text. You have heaven and earth mentioned twenty-one times. You have um, it was so and God saw that it was good, mentioned seven times. Um, there there are seven words in Genesis one uh, 1 one, 7 verses later, there are seven words in Genesis 114, seven were uh, verses later, there are seven words in verses 21. The point is in in Hebrew right? like as you're reading this in the Hebrew original Hebrew text, there is a strong poetic structure to this mm-hmm. and yet, it's not in a way that you would sing Genesis one. You know what I mean? This isn't a song. Um, It's also not typical of your Psalms as a, as a poem. Um, So what is it? Right. And how, how do we make sense and how does that kind of feed into how we should read this? And I'll just offer this one. Most scholars would come to a, an agreement that, um, and they may define it a little bit or use different words, but it's what we would probably call um, elevated prose. Or if I could say it this way, it's poetic narrative, being okay. that it's telling a story poetically. Um, and that's important because, you know, poetic narrative, I could be telling a true story, but that true story may not necessarily be literal in the terms of um, sequence because it's being told poetically, of right? Course. Um so it, it's certainly elevated prose. It, it's telling a story poetically um, in terms of its structure. It's not meant to be sung. It's not meant to necessarily be, um, or if I could put it this way, it's not um, It's not a psalm, right? It's not a song. It's not a haiku, um, but it's more of like a Shakespeare. You know, it's, it's just this poetic storytelling that's kind of going on behind it. Um <clears throat> But why that's important, though, and I think the big takeaway from that, reading it through that that kind of that lens, is that ultimately, why do you write something poetically? Because the narrative that he that is being told there is different than the narrative that you see being written in like Exodus and, and Numbers and um you know the his history. I mean, it, the, the it's telling a story, but not the same way. Like you know, it's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: why why would I tell something poetically like that? You well, know, why, why do you... Why, if you were to write a poem... I
0: could throw out a guess. Okay, go ahead. I could throw out a guess. Be, uh, if I remember correctly, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't have a written language right off the bat. Um, so everything was communicated uh, through song, through poetry, so that it could be easily remembered by the following generations, and they could carry that forward. It wasn't until, uh, I don't know... Ex- no idea exactly how much time, but it wasn't until a long time later that all of this stuff was written down and formally structured into the Torah.
2: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And there there was a lot of things like that, but there was also, I mean, they were in an oral tradition, uh, you know, culture. So you know, there was a lot of other things that weren't poetry, but they still remembered. Um, but I, I guess what I'm trying to ask, though, is if you were to write a poem for Selena, you know, why would you do that?
0: To convey a message to her.
2: To convey a message, um, to convey a beauty, right? Yeah. To, con- to convey an affection or, or something, right? In other words, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think, um, you know, certainly if you accept that Moses is the author of Genesis and the Torah, you know, the Torah is often the books of Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why is Moses writing Genesis 1 this way? Um, and I think it's because what he's trying to communicate is something beautiful. So the first element that you should really just approach Genesis one with is like, hey, like, because I think it almost creates a sense of frustration sometimes for people. Like you read it and you're like, okay, but, but it says there was this day and this day. And then what about this? I mean, you know, how are how are this, the, the plants surviving if the sun wasn't made until day four and the plants are made on day three and photosynthesis and we get wrapped up in the scientific lens that we first needed to step back and what? Go through it through the literary structure lens and understand this is elevated prose. It's poetry and, and that it uses poetic language because it's beautiful. But what Moses is trying to communicate to us is beauty. And if you are reading Genesis one I mean, and not getting that beauty, that, that feeling of this is just beautiful, then you're already approaching it probably from a, a false you're Probably pretext. starting
0: with that bias. Like we talked about, um, I guess several weeks ago now um, that if you start with a bias and then go into the knowledge with a bias then you're going to get a different understanding than starting with the information and trying to develop an understanding and an interpretation based off the knowledge first right
2: so that's that's the that is the hermeneutical fallacy of eisegesis so these are some going to be some million dollar words here but that was that was a yeah that was yeah. a 10
0: what was it 1 dollar word for a 10 cent conversation <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you got exegesis which is that you read um, scripture in its context, and you draw out from it Eisegesis is that you start with the context that you read into it and and you don't want to do eisegesis. that that's that's starting with a position of view a a belief um and that you essentially attack that on to the narrative um so you're you're not really reading it objectively um you're you're reading it through a bias and kind of leading it to where you want it to go. Where we should be studying it through exegesis, um, you know, draw out of the text what it's actually telling us. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, but, but that's, but the, that's the first point. Just know that you need, when you read Genesis 1, what's being communicated here in terms of its literary sense is that it's beautiful. Now, it may have, you know, that, that, that piece, you know, may have impacts on, um, the way you viewed it before. But again, by the end of it, I think we'll realize that m- the way most people view the, the purpose of Genesis 1 and what they argue about and, um, you know, apologetics and, and all that is really silly um, in its context. So, first, just know, though, that it shouldn't be a source of frustration for you. It shouldn't be a source of contention. It should not be something that you are, um, you know, arguing uh, tooth and nail with your atheist friend about. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something beautiful. It's, it's, it should be re- given and shared beautifully. Okay. Uh, but the second one is this, I want to kind of just read this through a historical lens. And that's why I want to kind of talk about that point you brought up earlier about, you know, the, the point in which the, the Bible was, um, or how it was written. I, I want to kind of just twist that a bit and say, let's talk about though, how things were revealed cuz <clears throat> cuz scripture like genesis starts off in the beginning and goes chronological through the torah in terms of you know how it chronologically how things yeah. happen um and most of the bibles that way you know you start getting into these these kinks though where like when you go you know it goes through the torah um chronologically you get into the his, historical books um but then you hit the you know the songs and the and wisdom books,
0: you know, Proverbs. are like an amalgamation of so many things over so many years. Right.
2: That was occurring through all that previous historical time. Then you get to the prophets, the minor major prophets. Those are all clustered together, but those are all actually acting at certain points in time during those other, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, So so it gets a little clunky, but overall, generally, it's written chronologically. At least, let's just talk about the Torah for now, in the context of Moses.
0: And the Torah includes which books?
2: Um, That is... Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and uh, Leviticus. So, so those are that's the Torah. Why Did You say them out of order. I don't know why you said them out of order. I don't know. <laughs> I need another cup of coffee. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that it's written chronologically. But that's not the chronology of how things were revealed to Moses and or to his original audience. Okay. I, I think this is a very important point for us to understand what's going on here in Genesis one. So, um. Think about Moses' original audience for a second. Who were they? Where were they? What were some of their biases, right? Um, they had been in Egypt for over 400 years since Joseph, um, mm-hmm. going in, you know, over 400 years. Um, that's longer than our country's been a country. It's t- almost almost twice, twice as long. Almost twice as much, yeah. Twi- almost twice as long as our country's been a country. They were in Egypt. Egypt was a polytheistic, Society, just like the rest of Mesopotamia was. They were all polytheistic, multiple gods. Um, the Hebrews understood that there was a promise made to them through um, the covenant with Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and right? So, through the patriarchs, the, the forefathers, that God had made a covenant with them and, and had made a promise to them. But that was it. That's really all they knew. Okay. Mm. There is a God out there. Um I, I there's a God out there who made a promise that, that we'd be delivered, that he promised us this land and that we'd be blessed. Great. That that well, happened we, we've just been out here four or five hundred years ago. Up. Right? Okay. And just a God who made a promise to us. I'm in mm. a poly polytheistic society. Do you think that maybe most of those Hebrews had probably adopted much of that
0: polytheistic thinking and belief. Just looking at what they struggled with out there and how quickly they would return to their making words. their own idols, mm-hmm. worshiping their own idols. Like they were constantly struggling through this process you over got generations. It, right?
2: Even when, now, now, okay. So agreed, right? But we all agree that they were probably um, very polytheistic, the Hebrews themselves. Yeah. They had to unlearn that um, stuff. Right. You get Moses first interaction at the burning bush. Okay? This is like one of the first big revelations. He, he
0: was raised in Egypt, wasn't he?
2: He was. He was a prince. Yeah. Um we may We may talk about that here in a second about his but 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 my point though with the burning bush though, in terms of revelation, that's the first revelation that he gets is at the burning bush. When Moses asks, he says, Who should I send sent me? What's your name? Who are you? Why would you ask that question? Because if I had a view that there was one God, that God made a promise to me, why are you even asking who is sending you? The reason he's asking that is because where he came out of and where everybody else came out of, they were all probably polytheistic people. okay? And God says, I am that I am.
0: He was also going to be going to a polytheistic king and trying to explain to him why he needs to let um, all of his slaves go, which were the uh, the Jews. Right, that's, that's not
2: only just where he was going, but it's what he was coming out of, and he probably held a little bit of that himself. Um, now, I, I, I do think, though, you know, Jethro, his, his uh, father-in-law, um, you know, who he belonged to, I, I, I think they were monotheistic. I think they kind of kept a so he may have already been getting introduced or open or even maybe converted at that point. But the question, though, which God are you? is kind of a way of asking that which who should I tell them which God sent me of course he says i'm not I am that I am and um and, and that's that's going to be a whole other, I think podcast at some point but my point is is that even at that revelation is that um you know he's asking which God you know do I say is, is sending? what what's your name you know who are you um that's important because when you get to understanding that you know you get the whole exodus narrative, and then like you guys already brought up all that time in the desert, what are they bringing? that they're they're idols, they're um, making golden calves, right? That they're falling right back into polytheism over the time. Oh, yeah. The, the point is is that to Moses, his greatest um pastoral challenge was to wet is to disciple in a nation of like over a million people. Not really a nation though, like a people of over a million trying to yeah. go into
0: right? Shared people trying to find a Nation, who are hungry like, going who are tired
2: who don't have water who you know what i mean he's doing there's a lot going on and he's trying to keep them and teach them that um there's only one god okay the biggest message for moses was monotheism that was the big big message um i think that's important because we don't live in a polytheistic society at least um, mo- not here in America. Not not in America. Well, even in, I would say where we are in the world. I mean, if you look at the,
0: I guess yeah, the top, top
2: three, two, yeah. top three, yeah, religions right. in the world are all monotheistic, right? Um, They're also
0: all abrionic religions. That's a whole other discussion.
2: It is. I mean, you still got Hindus who who believe in millions of gods. that are polytheistic. You got you know, Buddhism. They don't really believe in. It, it's like you know, more is a little bit association
0: weird. to the universe type of thing, right?
2: Um. But the top three, I mean, if you look at, and you were to tally them up, I mean, well over half the world are all monotheistic now. So this doesn't seem to be a big deal to us, mm. but in their culture and their, their perspective and the original audience was for, this is like the thing. They're the only ones. It would have blown their minds with the idea that there are not multiple gods, but that there's only one. Okay. Um, I want you to think about that because not only coming out of that um that per, that that culture they would have took with them a lot of their beliefs okay so um when you look at the creation narrative of that culture, what did they believe right because that's probably something they believed and okay you're you're telling us there's only one god well who who created the world or how did he create the world then you know what i'm saying there there's this whole um piece with that so This is what's interesting, and I think something that many don't have kind of missed, but um, I want to show you the incredible parallels between Genesis 1 and the Egyptian mythology uh, or uh, creation mythology story, okay? Okay. Um, Because they're going to be very, very similar, and I'll just warn everybody now— a lot of people get really scared by this, like, "Oh, if it's this, there's so much the same, then, then how true is it?" Right? Just don't get scared. I promise you that there, there's a, there's a beauty in this. Right to the first point, there's a beauty. But um, the preface, and you, you could go look this up, right? Like this isn't you, you know, you could go to um, any history museum of Egypt, and you, you'll be able to read their mythology story, right? Um, but the first piece is that you got the primeval waters, and, and that is. Uh, the, in the primeval waters, you had the the god Noon. Now, Noon, uh, I guess, would be your only pre-existing, like, eternal god, if you will. Okay? okay. Um Really the only one. Um, the, primi- the god of the primeval waters. Um, in the Egypt mythology, it actually says the infinite expanse of the dark and directionless water.
0: Okay? Was it Noon?
2: The god Noon was the god of the – was the – God of the infinite expanse of dark and directionless water. Okay. Okay. Now I want you to go to the Bible. Um, it says now that the the world was formless and void. Okay. The Hebrew words there is bohu and tohu, which means to be without. It, it's what, what, if, Hebrew language is idealistic, meaning um, you know we got Greek; it's very precise, like uh, English. Same thing, very precise. But but Hebrew. Pre- particularly biblical Hebrew shares ideals. Like one word can mean 12 different things because, but if the word is annotating is the substance and the, the ideal of something. Okay.
0: That's really interesting.
2: So, um, tohu and bohu, um, the ideal is one of to be without purpose or lacking direction. Okay. Um, and if you notice it says that the, um, the earth was formless and void tohum bohu you know without purpose lacking direction and the spirit of god was over the darkness of the deep right you all see that mm-hmm. well when you look at egypt um, and there there's the infinite expanse of the dark and directionless water the god noon you see that uh, if you bring oh, the next big piece is bring in order so depending on what part of egypt you are you have two different mythologies it's either called ra or Adam, the god Adam or the god okay. ra I'm gonna just refer to Ra, just because I think everyone's most familiar with that from like the Prince of Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, Disney uh, did a great job. Yeah, yeah. You know, evangelized
0: to a generation, which is ironic (laughs)
2: because actually, in that place where Moses would have been, they probably would have called him Adam. But it's all right; it doesn't matter. It's it's it's, Adam slash Ra. I'm just going to say Ra, okay? Um, But in Egypt mythology, out of the god Noon, the god of light, Ra, uttered his own name. And came into existence. Okay, this is Egyptian mythology. Noon, out of noon, the god Noon, Ra uttered his own name, who is the god of light, and brought himself into existence. So, Ra says, Let there be Ra. And Ra came, right? And when you look at the Bible, what's was like, And God said, Let there be light. light. light okay. Um, I mean, I think I'm making the point already. I mean, I could keep going through this because the parallels are just, uh, I'll, I'll do a little bit more, okay? So um, the um, offspring of Ra came the god Shu and Tefnut, and these are going to be real fun to say, but Shu was the god of moist air, Tefnut the draw, uh, the god of dry air, okay? Um, now, in Egyptian mythology, Shu and Tefnut separated the sky and the water. What do you see going right into um, Genesis verses 6, right after we create light, 6 through 8?
1: God separated sky and water. God
2: separated the sky and water, right? The next piece, um, you got offspring from Shu and Tefnut. You get the god Geb, who is the god of dry land, and the god Nut, who is the um, sky god, okay? Um, And what they do is um, noon receded, okay? so or another i think mythology is actually the god Noon retreated mm-hmm. its influence and power creating room for geb the god geb who is the god of dry land to appear okay? okay so right after you see the separation of sky and water what do you see in um verse 9 uh through 10 scripture says that the he separated the sea and the land okay um next piece um You also got the god Seth and the the goddess Osiris um, work counter to each other throughout this entire process. So um, one was the god of order. The other one was the goddess of disorder. Mm -hmm. And and the idea was kind of like this duality that they were always constantly fighting each other. So as like the gods are making – trying to make order and kind of make progress, then she's kind of making less order and creating chaos. And there's just like this kind of the struggle between Seth and Osiris. Okay. Okay um the god of order and disorder but you see in the scripture though now i want you to note this this term uh, cuz you read it in the ver- uh, day 1 mm-hmm. but it says and there was evening and there was morning right yeah the first day there were the first day um there was evening and there was morning the first day the hebrew for that is erev and boqer okay it literally means to the ideal is to bring order or disorder okay um and remember cuz it's idealistic um. Well, why do we use um? You know, um, Arab and Bohair for uh evening, to and morning. Evening and morning. Yeah. it's because the ideal. Just think about them, right? The ideal of what evening brings is disorder. You know, the sun goes down. I can't see as good. Predators come out. That's when the thieves come out. That's when there is disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, morning, a dawning light, brings order. Okay. Arab and it, it reveals it, too, yeah. Because it's why it is, um, um, it's an ideal that is yeah. that's behind that word, right? Order and disorder. So you have order and disorder. The God order and disorder working in Egyptian mythology, you know, with each other. What we hear, see after every single day is that God says, essentially, there was a there was disorder, but then there was more order. It's like it's like this progression going from disorder to order. Um, after every single um, day, right? Um. If you keep going down the, the mythology, Ra needed a place to,
0: to rest. Hold on. Okay. So you're saying, and I'm just making sure I'm hearing you right, that where the verbiage says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, evening, morning, the second day, evening, morning, the third day, it's not specifically talking, or may not be specifically talking about a day, but it's talking about that process of going from disorder to order, and things are going from disorder. So well, let me why? ask
2: you if you're taking a very scientific lens, a, approach to this, is going from evening to morning a full day, anyways? No. Right. So it's like twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's longer than twenty. It's like half a day, but mm. um, but but the point though, um, that's the ideal behind the word eravimbo care. That's there, right? So. That's what's hard about Hebrew is that um, it's the ideal behind the word that you have to apply to the text, not, well, are we talking about a literal evening and a literal day, or are we talking about the ideal of a of, of disorder okay. to order, right? That's the ideal. The ideal is what he's saying is, Guys um, said, let there be light, um, separated the light from the darkness, and then... Separated
0: the sea from the that,
2: land. I brought it from from disorder to order. Yeah, first day, right? Um that's the ideal behind those words. So yeah, that's really You know, you, you could take process there. It is, and it's just the way Hebrew, you know, is structured, it's the way they think and approach to to not just language, but um, you know, Hebrew words are very substantive. You know, they speak to character and you know, even the Hebrew alphabet, the letters themselves are words. So mm-hmm. You know, a a word in itself is also a a sentence in itself. And that all carries meaning that ties back to things. Um, So when you do word studies of Hebrew, it's very complex and very fun. Reveals a lot. Um, But it's, yeah, it gets kind of in there, right?
1: So they probably don't really struggle with what I'd say reading in English. Like we tend to ask, like, was it really seven days? Like, did that happen... And we did God rest on the seventh day, but Hebrews reading it through that, like those concepts, like they don't really struggle with our interpretation.
2: I would say that from a scholarship view, the idea that the um, Genesis one is literal in terms of days, like the six day piece has always been split 50-50. Um, You get back to the Cappadocian Fathers, one of the, um, you know, during the patristic era of Christianity, half of them believed a literal inter- interpretation, half of them didn't.
1: Okay. When you
2: look at Augustine of Hippo, who was like the great, was intellectually unmatched by anybody. Like they said, the mind of Augustine had, um nobody had a mind like him since uh, Plato. Okay. And nobody had a mind like him until probably Thomas Aquinas, you know, much, much, you know, centuries later.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Brilliant dude, and he, but you know, he didn't take a literal approach to it. He took an allegorical approach, and um, there's always been a split. You know, um, there, there's never been a consensus, but there also has never been like an ecumenical council to come in and say we really need to figure out is Genesis one are we talking about literal days or not? You know why they've never had to bring in an ecumenical council? Um, because it doesn't matter ultimately to the point of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, we make it more important than it is. And you know, like I'm kinda going through the historical lens right now. There's a lot of other lenses to go through, but as we go through those lenses, you're gonna realize like that whole debate is just silly. It's like why are we even talking about it? Like that's not there's so much beauty and, and depth here to this of what's being revealed to us that that piece I think gets very much overshadowed to where you you wouldn't even be your mind or your focus, right? Um, but, but to the point though, you know, and I think I made the point, right? Like it keeps going, giving life. Um, Ra needs a place to, to rest yeah. and um, produces plants and animals and creatures on Geb, who is the god of dry land, right? Uh, you got Ra who creates man from the dust, right? Um, and then you start seeing those same elements played back, right? But here's the big piece. And this is what all scholars would say. They, and I, And I mean like non-Christian, like, these are, like, history, like, you know, like... Historians would say. Historians um, that aren't necessarily believers. Maybe they are, but not necessarily believers. But um, the thing they would say about the mythology between um, Egypt, Babylon, all the uh, the ancient Mesopotamian mythologies, the Sumerians, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, not the Sumerians, the uh, Phoenicians, um, and how it relates to, you know, the Hebrew Bible... They'd be like, well, yeah, it's all the same elements. It's telling the exact same story. They said, the what makes the Hebrew Bible unique, though, and this is the point. Okay, I want you, this is the point. Is is that what why it follows the exact same storyline, the same narrative, the same elements, almost the exact same language in a sense of Egyptian mythology. The biggest thing that's missing is that it's just one God present speaking over the functions of what the other gods otherwise would have been called. So it's not that out of noon, Ra uttered his own name and spoke himself into existence as the God of Light. Instead, it's Yahweh saying, let there be light.
0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and pause here. I know, I know it's engaging. I know it's uh, been a wild, wild ride. But we're going to continue next week with part two of our discussion into Genesis 1. I thank you so much for tuning in. I thank you so much for listening in. And I hope, I hope that you'll join us again next week for part two of our discussion. Thank you and have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Real Bible Stories. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to be notified each week when we upload new episodes. Real Bible Stories is produced in part by Palms Church in 29 Palms, California. If you would like more information or want to check out archived sermons and Bible studies, please check out the church website at palmsbaptistchurch.com or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Real Bible Stories can be found wherever podcasts are found. Thank you again, and we will see you next week.